We do thank you, Father, for your word. For if we didn't have it, we would be in total darkness. We ask that you would be pleased to illumine our minds now that we might receive from you the light that you have shed for us to see. Give your servant clarity of thought and precision in speech that we might hear only what you have for us to hear today. We pray this in the glorious name of Jesus. Amen. The best ordered church in the world is not exempt from Satan's attack. That surely is the singular message of these five verses. If you'll remember, we go back to chapter 1 when Paul began this letter to young Timothy and to the church at Ephesus. And he began by warning that there would be people who swerved from the truth and then wandered off into other areas. And then he came immediately back and said one of the main ways they do this is by by not teaching the law properly. And so we, we looked then at the law of God and how it's to be understood and its three uses. We saw that the law is good and spiritual and holy when it's used properly as a deterrent to sin, as a, as a, a pedagogical tool or a, a, a schoolmaster, as Paul uses the term, to, to guide us to Christ. And then for, for believers, it's, it's a rule of life. We go to the law to know what we're supposed to do, how we're supposed to live, and all ways in humble reliance upon the Holy Spirit. And then Paul moved from the things that these men were teaching that were errant, men like Hymenaeus and Alexander... Uh, we looked at church discipline there at the end of chapter 1. But he then moves into, okay, this is what's wrong. This is what's causing my tr- church problems. Here's one of the ways that we deal with this. We order the church properly. Men, here's your role. Women, here's your role. And we had that understanding of the, the relationship, the complementary relationship of, of man And men being leaders in the church, women uh, having their place, their proper places of service. And that's what we looked at all the way through chapter 2. And then he comes back to the men and says, okay, if the men are to be leaders in the church, then which men? And so he gave us the qualifications. Men who have these qualifications. Men who hold these positions. These are the elders. And men who have these qualifications. These are the deacons of the church. And then we concluded last time looking at the very end of chapter 3 with Paul, the importance of writing in case he was delayed. He didn't want to put this off. Truth, getting truth to the church is always, always important. It's not something to be put off to later. And so he sent them this letter in case he was delayed in coming. And he concludes with Knowing this, this is what the church confesses. This is our 
this is our, our primary work as the church to confess the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. And that then brings us to chapter 4 because the tendency, I think, is uh, for churches who are cautious and careful or another word for cautious and careful is devoted Churches who are devoted to the truth and to doing things the way God would have them do it, the tendency sometimes can be that we, 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 we say, okay, well, we're doing everything properly. We won't have any problems. It's kind of like in a marriage. Well, I, I'm doing everything right, so what's your problem? So we do everything properly. We've examined scriptures and we're taking the, the, the great teaching of the, of the church from the past and, and we're saying, yes, these are the things we're to do. We, we go back and, and we rely on the scripture and the way it's been understood by Christ's church and the way it's set forth in their standards. And, and yet the fact is, isn't it, that you can do everything perfectly as perfectly as humanly possible, and there are still problems. Things are still going to happen that are not right. And so Paul comes back to this and says, Now, I started by warning you about those men. Well, and I told you what the proper response was. But keep in mind that you're still going to have problems. There's still going to be people who, who are out there causing problems, and there's still going to be people who come in the church and cause problems. And so that's where we are now. He comes back to that point and warning them. Basically, as the title, warning, Satan hates good behavior. He hates good behavior in individual lives. He hates good behavior in the church. When the church is properly ordered, doing the things it's supposed to do, Satan is not going to be happy. His minions will be active. And so he begins, now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith. So Paul begins saying, okay, I want you to understand a few things. And the first thing I want you to understand is that the Spirit, the Spirit's the one telling you these things. The Spirit expressly says, just a little excursus there. The Spirit expressly says, I'm just seeing a note this week, over half of professing evangelicals in America do not consider the Holy Spirit to be a person of the Godhead, but a, some sort of force of activity in the world. Not pertaining to this, but just so you know how bad it is, one fifth believe, like Arius in the, in the third century, that Jesus Christ was not eternal but had some origination point in time and space, namely the incarnation. One fifth. That's just mind blowing and sad. But back to the Spirit. The Spirit expressly says, speaks to his personality, his personhood. 
the Spirit expressly says. And, and so the first thing I want you to see here is a simple point, but it'd be easy to pass over and just get right on to what the Spirit says. And the Spirit says there's going to be problems. But let's not just jump over it that quickly. Please note that what we're seeing here is God saying something, and that makes it true. And so what Paul's warning his folks to do, and what we need to do here, because he wrote it not just to the Ephesians, but for us, all of God's people throughout time, is that God's truth is our only source of truth. And so that's the first point. The only source of truth is God. And that's something we need to never lose sight of. God is the source of our truth. Here, Paul's speaking particularly of what we call, refer to as special revelation. God's the author of all truth, whether it's in natural or general revelation disclosed to us, which we mine, or whether it's in special revelation, which we're looking at now. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith. So let's never forget our source of truth. And unlike the false prophets and the false apostles of every age since, and we're all in agreement that if you claim to be an apostle today or a prophet today, you are a false one because the scriptures are very clear on what the qualifications are for an apostle and a prophet. And so no one today can meet those qualifications. But Paul is saying, what I'm saying to you is not my own opinion. What I'm saying to you will come to pass. He said these things with no fear of being stoned to death. Which, of course, is the penalty for a false prophet. So he's speaking here prophetically because he's talking about the later times. Interestingly, these very things he warned of were already happening. And he's just telling us in, the, in, the, in these last days... And that's terminology in the New Testament, speaking from Christ's ascension to his second coming. In, these, in these, these latter days, but particularly, he says, it's going to get worse. It's going to get worse. So first, the church is not to grow complacent, but always turning to the word of God in humble reliance upon the Holy Spirit. Second, the truth is that apostasy will occur. The Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. I don't know about you, but it, it gives me good some comfort that he didn't say in later times a whole lot will depart from the faith. Or better, grammatically, many will depart, but some will. Some will depart. Some will depart from the faith. Paul, writing to Timothy, and what he's saying here is that some who have tasted, some who have nibbled, 
some who have sampled the truth and that's been preached will not persevere but will follow false teaching. We saw this in Hebrews chapter 6 when we looked at that at some length uh, some time ago now. The emphasis there in the writer to the Hebrews that, that for those who, who, who taste and yet they don't really eat it. They don't really digest it. They just nibble around the edges and yet they profess that to be a Christian faith. And yet what he's saying here is that those who simply nibble on the edges, taste a little bit, sample here and there, will fall away. And they're going to get a little help. They're going to get help from, from men, just like Paul warned about in chapter 1. And that's the third point, the source. What's the source of this falling away? What's, what's, what pushes these people who've just been, just been superficially, nominally engaged in the Christian faith to fall away? Because we know that if we're in Christ Jesus, you cannot fall away. That's how we know that these are people who just nibbled around the edges, just sampled, just tasted, but didn't really imbibe of Christ, didn't eat his flesh and drink his blood as he tells us in John chapter 6. They're using that vivid language to speak of that's what saving faith is, is that you receive me for all that I am. My person, my work. And we know from many passages the truth that we read in Philippians 1 that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. So if, if you're going to fall away, you can't be part of that process. You must have only been like those in Hebrews who tasted, but you didn't eat. You sipped, but you didn't drink. Who is it that pushes them over the edge into total apostasy? Well, it tells us here, deceitful spirits. They've devoted themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. So the source of apostasy are those kind of men. You remember Luther in A Mighty Fortress is Our God? describes Satan as the prince of darkness grim. That's what that's what's we're talking about here. The prince of darkness grim and all of his little minions. And that can include human beings. If you turn back to Romans chapter 1, starting about verse 18, you begin reading and you realize that that people who suppress the truth, human beings who suppress the truth, and deny God's truth that's so clearly revealed in creation, Paul says. And they suppress it. And by suppressing the truth, they then began to nibble and dabble in other things and then 
in doing that, they get to the point where their consciences are seared and God turns them over to their own deeds. And then it says this, they not only revel in what they're doing, but they commend others to do it with them. Oh, what I'm doing is not that bad. Look. Come on. Join us. We're seeing our nation right now follow that path. But worse than that, we're seeing churches follow that path. Little by little, moving more and more to the edge. And their consciences become seared and hard to where they can't see the difference between right and wrong. They call wrong right and right wrong. Good bad and bad evil. I was just reading this week about a prominent pastor of a, of a, a large church who's fallen into what they're calling... a history of sins. What that means is he's been doing this stuff a long time. And by the way, you can grow a big, big church with a bad, bad pastor. That should be scary, scary, scary to everyone. And you know what? Even when it was unveiled that this pastor had been doing this with members of the church and others, the cry of the church was, oh, we want to forgive him. We don't want him to leave. We want him to stay our pastor. We want to... And you're like, what? He doesn't meet the qualifications of 1 Timothy chapter 3, 1 Peter chapter 5, Titus 1. And you're willing to overlook God's word to keep him as your pastor, knowing all that he's been doing for as long as he's been your pastor. In other words, you have a hypocrite in the pulpit. He has one face in the pulpit and he has another faces out there. And that's what Timothy's getting here from Paul. Through the insincerity of liars, and notice that word there, insincerity, if you have... If you have some other translation, perhaps the New King James, I think, translates this as through the hypocrisy of liars. That's the word, hypocrisi. We get our word hypocrite. They used it in, in, the, in the middle period, uh, uh, not Middle Earth for you Lord of the Rings people, but in the middle period, the Middle Ages, of, of play actors, actors who put on faces, they, they, they pretend to be one thing when they're something else. They're hypocrites. And he's saying this about these, these men. And he refers to them as deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars. So the source is, is deceitful spirits, lies, and it comes to us through the agency of of these kind of men whose consciences are seared. They don't even realize it. You know, it's, 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 it's a scary thing, isn't it? It should be frightening each of us. Children, you need to listen to this too. You can sin and sin and sin to the point that your heart 
is so hard that you can sin and not even recognize you're sinning. That's why it's vital, as as our Puritan forefathers said, to keep a short list of sins. In other words, don't let sins accumulate. Deal with them now. That That first movement, when the Holy Spirit pricks your conscience and says, no, that's wrong. You know what God's Word says about that. And then your friends come along and say, oh, that's not really what you're doing, though. You're not really violating that. Last night, watching a British comedy. I won't paint the whole scene, but this couple, they were rescued from a, a, a terrible, sticky situation by a friend. And when it was over, they thanked her and said, by the way, Isn't it uncommon for fog to settle in the Hampshires? And she smiled, the friend who delivered them from a sticky situation. She said, well, yes, it's highly unusual. In fact, it's not likely. And they said, they looked at her with an inquiring face and she said, well... A little white lie here and there, as long as it's helping someone. And so your friends will say a little white lie here and there, as long as you're helping someone. Oh, this, that's okay. This expression of affection, that expression, it's okay. You know, you don't want to be puritanical. You don't want to be Victorian. And little by little, you harden your heart, you stiffen your neck, and the scriptures replete with warnings about this. It's amazing, isn't it? Husbands and wives take vows till death do us part. And they, they would never lie to their wife, never lie to their husband. And a little sin creeps in. It may be looking at something on the internet. Maybe looking at something at work. Talking to someone at work in a, in a manner that's not appropriate. And ask by the spouse, is everything okay? Yes, everything's okay. And little by little, they harden their heart. And before long, the marriage is in crumbles. And they can lie without batting an eye. That's who's before us here in verse 2. Men who are hypocrites. Liars whose consciences are seared. And what is it, they, what is it they're using? They're using lies, it says. And notice the two examples Paul gives. He's told us back in chapter 1, certain persons by swerving from these, that is, pure heart, good conscience, sincere faith, 
by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Here he comes back to this and says, one of the lies they're saying is you shouldn't be married. Now here's what they were saying. If you really want to be holy, you need to abstain. Abstain from marriage. Abstain from food. Certain foods. If you really want to be holy. And so you say, Pastor, you mean they weren't saying if you really want to have fun? Abstain from marriage? Abstain from food? Certain foods? No, that's not what they were saying. What they were saying is if you really want to be holy... And we can study this out. It's going on at this time, obviously. We get into the, into the second century and we can read account after account of various movements coming into the church, seeping into the church, and their main approach to holiness was abstinence, asceticism, living ascetic lifestyles. Not just abstaining from marriage, but in order to abstain from marriage and not sin, go out and cloister yourself away someplace. Stay by yourself. When the Lord said, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. But it's all under the guise of be holy. And that's, what, that's where you end up falling, isn't it? It's not the blatant things... Hey, let's go kill somebody tonight. That's not, you're not, (laughs) most of you aren't going to fall for that one. But hey, do you know, do you know what, do you know what I learned about him? And remember what Jesus said about murder and the heart? You don't have to pull the trigger. You don't have to push the knife. It can be with the mouth as easily. And it can be not in their face but behind their back. And then, by the way, I told you all that. Bad stuff about that person so that you can pray for them. So we make it holy again. And that's what ascetics do. And that's what the problem is here. You say, well... Is it wrong not to be married? Not necessarily. Paul says so in 1 Corinthians. But also remember back to creation. God said it's not good for man to be alone. And so he made woman. We discussed all this in chapter 3. That's the ideal. A husband and wife multiplying. Filling the earth. Producing covenant children like we see all over this room. To grow up in godliness and holiness and live for the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the ideal. But if in God's providence he doesn't bring a suitable mate, is it, is it sin to be single? No. If there's not a suitable mate. If he's given you that gift of which Paul speaks of in 1 Corinthians, it's not a sin. But it is a sin if you think being married makes you more holy or if you think being single makes you more holy. How about food? God did tell his people 
in the Old Covenant, there are certain things I don't want you to eat. It's not because they weren't good. He'd already pronounced them good back in Genesis chapter 1. But it was to mark them out as a peculiar people. But that's gone. The dietary law is gone. That's part of the laws that have been abolished. Remember the vision that the Lord gave Peter? And it was full of all the good stuff, including the pigs and the shrimp and the lobsters. And he said, now, eat. It's all clean. It was all good. And for somebody to come in and say, you can be more holy if you become vegetarian, is a lie. Now, if you have trouble digesting meat products and you have to live on some other sort of diet, that's a different issue. Paul's not addressing that. He's saying if somebody comes to you and says, well, I'm more holy. And by the way, there are Christian sects alive and well today that forbid certain things that you shouldn't eat. And if you will live this way, you'll be more holy than those people who do eat the barbecue pig and the oyster on the half shell. And that's what Paul's talking about here. They're wrong. And they're guiding you into wrong living. And you don't need to submit to that. Men who teach such things and organizations who require such things have on the authority of God seared their consciences. Their consciences have become insensitive to right and wrong through the cauterization process of lie upon lie upon lie. And they think forcing, pressing uh, an ascetic lifestyle on people will make them better. And God says otherwise. John calls us to consider the spirit. Be sure that you're following the right spirits. The false spirits over here leading you into all sorts of into falsehood. And it sounds good. You'll be more holy if you do this. Test the spirits that they're teaching you the right thing. There's something else scary about that. When you go to 1 John, as Pastor John's preaching through now, John refers to men like that as possessing the spirit of the Antichrist. You mean it's serious that somebody would teach you that you could be more holy if you withheld this or withheld that? Didn't do this, didn't do that? Yes, it is serious. They're anti-Christ. They're against Christ. Because, because, listen, we know, we know from the scriptures that salvation is not based on what you do or do not do. Salvation is based upon God's grace alone. You are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. And when we say you are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, we mean you are not only justified and adopted, but you're sanctified and you're persevering in good works by God's grace in humble reliance upon the spirit of the living God. 
So to teach otherwise is to teach antichrist against the Lord. And so Paul concludes this way. He says, he says, they forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For, and so here, he says, what, how should we respond? How should we think rightly about this? What's the source of our withstanding apostasy? If you're, gonna, if you're not going to topple off the edge, if you're not going to allow this kind of teaching to get into your heart and change your mind and thinking process, then you're not going to nibble and sample and sip around. You're going to eat this good truth right here. For everything created by God is good. Just settle that in your hearts, folks. Everything created by God is good. Now, I do know this. Because of the fall, some things can be harmful to us. And we have to be very aware of that. Some of you know this. When I was in Brazil just a few years ago, I went to, to, to a meal one day, and, and so we're going down the line, and they're, they're putting stuff on my plate, and I don't know what some of it is. And, and uh, we get to this, this bowl of stuff that's um, non-descript. I can't even tell you what it looked like. I don't know. It just was, it looked, and it was kind of dark, and it looked stringy, and I couldn't tell if it was vegetable or meat, and. And uh, so they said, now, you've got to have some of this. And it goes on top of this. So I said, okay, I'll, I'll, take, I'll take a little. And so they put a lot. And, and so I get to the table, and I'm nibbling on it, and it's, the taste is nondescript, as nondescript as the appearance. I'm like, oh, okay. That's better than tasting bad, right? So, so I'm, I'm eating, while I'm eating it, This dear brother said, uh, this is, this is a, a trademark of our state, our region. I said, really? I said, so what is it? So he told me it was a certain plant that grows out in the Amazon. I said, oh, really? He said, yeah. He said, you know, unless you cook it nine times, it'll kill you. <laughs> well, I laughed, and he said, no, I'm serious. Now, there are a lot of things to ponder about that. How many people died before they figured out it was nine times instead of eight or seven or six or five or four? And the other question is, why bother? I would have quit after the first or second time, right? Now, here's the point, though. Even that God made, it's good. But we know because of the fall, some things have just like us. We're marred by the fall, right? And there are some of those plant things that God made that have become marred by the fall. They'll be restored in the new heavens and new earth. We'll get to eat them without cooking them nine times. But we start with standing apostasy. We start challenging those lies that are out there 
by recognizing that God is the creator of all things and that he made all things good. Second, Paul says, nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. I said thanks several times during that meal that day. And that thanksgiving was also tinctured with a little prayer of please preserve me from I hope they cooked this nine times. Thank you, Lord. I prayed that night for me not getting sick over that stuff too. But faith rejoices in God's creation. That's what Paul's saying. Nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving, with rejoicing. Faith rejoices in God's creation. So, withstanding apostasy, know God's the creator. Know that we're to rejoice over everything God's made. And then notice lastly what he says. For it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. Two of the primary means of grace that the Lord has given his church. You're saying, wow, food's made holy through the means of grace? Yeah. That's why we pray and ask the Lord to bless it. So prayer, we, and we ask him to bless it because it's good. And we, wanna, we want it to be good for our bodies. Means of grace, steer the faithful from apostasy. How do we know how to even pray for things? God's word tells us that it's all good. So we're back to that issue of, if we're going to avoid apostasy, knowing that it's, it's, it's something that happens. Peter said, make sure you're calling an election. Paul said that we're to examine ourselves, that we be found in Christ. And so when these kind of issues arise, when people bring up these little half-truths, half-lie things, they sound good, I could be more holy if I did this, that. What we need to be sure and do is examine them according to the word of God and move to what Paul says here. Recognizing that everything comes from God is good. And it's made holy by the word of God in prayer. Just because we follow God's word as individuals, as the corporate church, doesn't mean that we're not going to be on Satan's radar. In fact, when we are faithful, we are going to be on his radar. When we are trying to rightly order our church... We're going to be on his radar. Look, if we're out there doing just anything and everything, he doesn't have to fool with us. We'll, we'll take care of our own demise. We'll embarrass God enough doing our own silly things. Satan doesn't have to be involved very much. But when we're doing the right things as parents with our children, as the elders and deacons with the church... Just know Satan's going to be active, and we have to do battle. Listen, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Paul writing to this same group of people. May we all take heed.
Father, we ask your blessings now in your word and pray that you would cause us to stand strong against the wiles of the evil one and stand for truth. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.